Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I am so excited to announce that I've teamed up with Mark Nathan to bring you the Consumer VC Summit. It's going to be from October 13th through 15th, and will be three days of discussions, talks from some of the top investors in CPG. So some of the industries we're going to be focusing on are food and bev, beauty and personal care, femtech, cannabis. There's going to be also lots of networking opportunities. And if you're a founder, we're going to have one-on-one mentoring sessions with investors. To get your tickets, head over to summit.theconsumervc.com. That'll also be located in the show notes. We cannot wait and we're excited to see you there. My guest today is Jordan Odinsky, investor and head of platform at Ground Up Ventures. Ground Up is an early stage venture capital firm investing in pre-seed and seed stage startups in the United States and Israel. Some of their investments include fast, shapeshift gaming, and neighborhood foods. In this episode, we discuss cult brands and unique product launches. I was quite intrigued in these two subjects, and Jordan wrote two excellent articles that are in the show notes for both. Without further ado, here's Jordan. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you, man? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me here. It's a real honor and a pleasure to chat with you today. No, really excited. Thanks so much for taking the time. You know, you published really compelling articles. Two that really stood out to me were about launch strategies for brands and cult brands. I'd love to just kind of dive in and then I'd love to obviously hear about your incredible career thus far and learn more about Ground Up. But on the launch strategies piece, you talk about scarcity when it comes to physical goods like Supreme and Yeezy. In software, this translates to exclusivity, waitlist, and if a brand like kind of want to use these strategies, how do they first go about it and finding their early adopters? So it's a great question. First off, I just also should note that I did a lot of thinking about launch strategies And I definitely want to give a a shout out to my co-author, Gabby Goldberg, and just want to start with that. But it's really a great question. The way that I think about it and the way that I kind of talk to our portfolio companies about it is that the most important aspect of putting together a launch strategy is to understand that number one, it's not one size fits all. That's not the way that it works. It's not whatever works for startup X will work for my startup. That's not the way it works. And so every founder has to kind of craft their own strategy. And whether that means putting together a wait list, whether that means, you know, going for the velvet rope 
of like finding the most exclusive people, you know, to go ahead and promote this product to. But it really starts with figuring out what's your specific niche and understanding where your users lie. And so some of the burning questions that I like to, you know, walk through with founders are, who are the diehard users of your product? And are you friends with them in real life? Are you friends with them online? And where do they hang out? Are they on Reddit? Are they on Discord? Are they on Twitter? Are they on LinkedIn? Do they meet up in person? And if so, that's where you need to go. That's where you need to find them. And that's where you need to hunt them down. So it doesn't even matter if they're online, if it's in real life, if they're on college campuses and office buildings. Your whole job as a founder, whether you're putting together an elaborate launch strategy or not, is to go find your early adopters and just hunt them down wherever they are and get your product in their hands. That makes sense. So it's almost like when you think about early distribution, really thinking about plain simply, where do the people that you're targeting hang out, right? Whether that's a social media channel, whether that's in real life, where are the types of areas in order to find out where, where early adopters and, and what you're working on um, actually are? That makes a lot of sense. One thing that really, really stuck out to me in your great piece is the case of Clubhouse, which I know is the VC Twitter is talked uh, about at length. And in the case of Clubhouse, it seems like they targeted high profile VCs and founders in their network as their initial market. And as you point out, they're now worth $100 million, but their user base is only around 5,000 people. Do you think we're going to see other social networks using that type of strategy in the years to come? Yeah, no doubt. VCs make really great targets, especially when founders understand how to game, you know, the VC psyche, so to speak. When you really look at like the job of a VC, the job of a VC is to build a brand. And there's two ways of obviously the primary job of a VC is to make money for your investors. That being said, the second job of a VC is to really build your brand. And the way that VCs do that is by being synonymous with hotness and exclusivity. They do that by getting into the best deals, investing in the best deals, associating their names with this exit, that exit, this hot company, and that hot company. That's how they build brand. And they thrive on exclusivity. And so it's all about, we invested in these notable companies and here's our anti-portfolio. And the more they align themselves with the most exclusive opportunities, the better their personal brands become. And what I actually think is that the Clubhouse founders, they deeply, deeply understood this and they deeply understood how to kind of game the system. And they you know, turned their startup into a symbol that divides kind of the haves and the have-nots of even VC, of like the top tier VCs and then the bottom half of people who are kind of the emerging managers who are just starting up, who might not live in the Valley or New York or wherever, might be living in different types of cities. But really, how do we kind of drive off of the psyche of what makes an investor tick? And I think that, you know, if you actually look at it, you, you know, we mentioned Clubhouse, but there are a bunch of other examples of companies who have successfully kind of launched their companies to VCs specifically. Like, for example, Superhuman's launch, at least from what I remember all the way in the beginning, was about hitting the VC market hard. It was about putting up a wait list and putting together an invite system where you really had to know someone to get in. And typically that meant you had to know a VC who had that, you know, sent with superhuman tag on the bottom of their emails in order to get it. So I think it's actually not just for social networks that are going to use this strategy. I think enterprise companies are going to use this strategy. I think that anything that could kind of play to that here, VCs, you could use this and you could talk about it and you could be excited and, and it could help further your personal brand. Any company that kind of fits in, into that metric and into that box should think about how to build this kind of strategy. But again, nothing is one size fits all. Everyone has to determine what works best for them. This is just something that works well for a lot of people, but definitely will not work well for everyone. 
Yeah. I mean, first of all, you know, thanks for explaining that. I think that's really helpful. I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to think of cases where it hasn't worked, right? And what comes to mind, and then again, this company wasn't really targeting VCs per se, but they were were certainly targeting for initial feedback, some of like the forefront technology innovators. Thinking about Segway, for example, where Segway thought they were going to change. I think Steve Jobs says this is going to change how cities are constructed, or it was one of the founders of Yahoo, where they didn't actually target for feedback feedback folks that actually, you know, are designing cities or like people that actually in the transportation world, right? And maybe in like Clubhouse's way, it would be actually maybe people in media, for example, rather than VCs. When a company does target like technology innovators and what you've seen with like Superhuman and like the amazing success that they have, but like you said, there's not like a one size fits all about what maybe some of like the other like experiments that have happened. Right. Well, what's interesting, I think, about VCs over other markets or other target audiences, perhaps aside from media, but specifically VCs, when they get behind something, every other VC wants to know what that is and figures out a way to get in. And so it's kind of like this self-perpetuating loop of, of hype and hotness just based off of kind of the psyche of the people who work in the industry. And that's great. And so it works in the favor of kind of startups that, that use this strategy in order to essentially just get people and to keep the buzz alive. Now in media, if you were to go to a to kind of a media target audience, what's great about them is they could keep, you know, they could pump it out in their publications and their newsletters and whatever. And that works great. The problem with that is that it dies pretty quickly, I think, is that, you know, for example, if, you know, when a new startup comes out and they have this launch in TechCrunch or VentureBeat or wherever, Business Insider, the problem is that they see a great spike within the first day, two, three days, and then it kind of just, you know, tapers off. With VCs, and this is really why you have to understand kind of the behavior of the people that you're going to, VCs are the type of people who will keep nagging at something if they think that someone else has a better opportunity to get into that opportunity and shove themselves in also. In a great way. Not I'm not putting down VCs. I think that it's a great thing. But it's just really important to understand who you're working with and understand their motivations and what drives their decision making before you end up going and choosing, you know, one target audience over the next. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that all these strategies are just really interesting and compelling and really excited for when uh, Clubhouse is available to the public to actually see how it works. That's awesome. Switching over to like your other piece about cult brands. How do you define a cult brand? So number one, I have to say there's a phenomenal book called The Culting of Brands by Douglas Atkins. He's just an amazing mind. And he was like the founder of Meetup and head of community at Airbnb. Really a brilliant guy who really just studied cults. So a lot of what I know and what I think I know, a lot of it came from his books and his lectures and just things that I could find on him. That being said, the way that I define a cult brand is kind of any brand that enjoys an irrational level of loyalty from their users and their followers. So it's not even about just the people who are signed up. It could be even fans of the company who aren't signed up, aren't paying, but for whatever reason, have an irrational level of loyalty to that brand and to that company. So think like, Day traders and Dave Portnoy. Think of you know Liquid Death and people who drink their water tattooing the logo on their arms. Think of people calling Rome, which is just a note-taking tool, a religion. Like people who really irrationally devote themselves and their brain power and their energy towards a specific brand. That's what I call a cult brand. I love that. And I really appreciate you explaining it. And that you talked about this in your article, which by the way, we're going to have both articles available in the show notes and wherever we blast this out on social media. You know, one of the characteristics that you mentioned in defining a cult brand is picking your enemy. What are some traits that the enemy has to have? And how should a startup think about defining the enemy? 
Yeah, it's a great question because if you get this wrong, then you don't have a cult brand because there's nothing to rally the followers behind. The best enemies are broad and they're deeply hated. Actually, Keith Boy from Founders Fund had a great tweet that I think about very often, but it was about investing, but it correlates perfectly to this. The tweet was, the formula for startup success is that you should find a large, highly fragmented industry with really low MPS, and you should vertically integrate a solution to simplify the value of the product. And what's really interesting there is kind of the first part, which is find like a really highly fragmented industry with low MPS. And similarly, when you're creating an enemy, that's exactly what you should do. So Superhuman broadly chose email and kind of put a small spotlight on Gmail. Lemonade broadly chose the insurance industry and actually given State Farm's attack ad on the industry, they chose State Farm as kind of the spotlight of the enemy. Dave Portnoy broadly chose Wall Street with a spotlight on Warren Buffett and you know the establishment of Wall Street and, and those kinds of investors. And so what you really have to do is think about an enemy that's iconic, something that you could picture, something that's broad enough that a large amount of people, but not too large, would have some sort of opinion on. And most of the time it's polarizing. It's either we subscribe to this belief or we don't subscribe to this belief, or it's a subliminal message. It's a subliminal feeling of, I either really enjoy this or I really don't enjoy this. And that's the whole goal of an enemy. The goal of crafting the perfect enemy is finding that wedge, finding that area where people are just polarized. People have very differing opinions. And it's something that a lot of people could get behind. That's essentially what you wanna look for when crafting an enemy. No, that's really helpful. And yeah, thanks for kind of pulling up those examples as well. I think that those are really interesting. I still think that like the liquid death tattoo, it's pretty remarkable, pretty amazing. Wild, just so wild. I wrote it in the piece and I was just thinking about it as like kind of an aside that I just can't imagine that any founder would wake up when they're starting this company being like, one day people are going to tattoo my logo on their bodies. Like that's like a real statement. And for people or for people to say my tool, my note-taking tool is like a religion. Like that's just unbelievable. Like you really need to land on something really remarkable in order to have that level of loyalty, which is why, you know, kind of crafting and creating an enemy is so, so interesting. Thinking about how brands successfully do that, depending on how intentional they are, is like kind of a, a separate conversation all itself about how intentional they are when crafting these strategies. But just to watch them come together and watch them manifest is so cool to watch from just being a fly on the wall. Yeah, I guess manifesting and actually, you know, creating the strategy. I mean, I guess you never know, of course, when you're thinking about building a brand, if it's going to work or not, right? And that like level of loyalty that you get from it. So it's amazing to see it like with these kind of case studies that you are revealed when it works. I mean, it's just pretty remarkable. So you point out as well this paradox where folks, you know, feel most like themselves when they are part of a group, but the initial drive to join a cult is to discover and clarify one's individualism. Is this a balancing act that founders have to manage or think about when founding cult brands? They really work hand in hand, to be honest, at least the way that I see it. While people join cults to clarify their individualism, you know, kind of within their small circles of family and friends, when they join, it's really all about the greater cause. Their search for individualism and their search to be different really meshes with that greater message. So I wouldn't really call it a balancing act. They really work hand in hand. And essentially, yeah, I really think that that's why it's crucial to craft the perfect enemy to, you know, kind of hook and capture those followers. But it's an interesting question. It's an interesting point. I actually don't think, and kind of this goes towards the latter half of your question, you mentioned, you know, is this something that a balancing act that founders have to manage with founding cult brands? Actually, I want to dive in a bit more on this point. Actually, when I tweeted the article, Dave Portnoy, I quote tweeted it and said, becoming a cult leader isn't given, it's earned, which is such a great way of framing it. 
I don't know if anyone, like I said before about the Liquid Death founder, or Connor from Rome, I don't know if anyone woke up saying, I'm going to create a cult brand. I don't know if that was like in their founding DNA, that they believed that it was a cult brand. I think that's a few things happened and they saw they could take advantage of like kind of the way that the winds, you know, were turning. But I don't think that, that you could just found a cult brand. I think that it takes a, a ton of planning and strategy, but it really comes down to just luck. But yeah, I think on both points, it's just a really interesting question that when you think about building a cult brand, it's not as much as a balancing act as it is finding something that's broad enough that someone could find their individualism in and feel attached to that, you know, kind of that broader cause. That's what I would say on that. That makes sense. And, you know, broad enough so you can obviously have a large enough audience base, whether that's consumer base or what have you. So I really appreciate that. So it seems like, was that on the uh, commitment curve that you had in the article as well? Um, you have, you know, the higher you go, that'll eventually lead to, you know, word of mouth and organic growth, of course, as people become more and more committed to your brand, which of course is a really important metric when you're, you know, evaluating brands. If your brand is experiencing high organic growth and engagement from customers, would you then classify that brand automatically to be a cult brand? Yeah, definitely not. And the reason being is that, again, if you look at that commitment curve, there are a lot of different points on that commitment curve. And you know, actually, there's a really great article that Mark Suster wrote called um, Invest in Lines, Not Dots. And if you kind of just think about it, essentially, the point of the article is to say that there are a bunch of different puzzle pieces to everything, to different startups, to relationships, to everything. And what you want to be doing is you want to build all those kind of those puzzle pieces. You want to build those dots until they form lines. You want to build those puzzle pieces until they form a picture. And I think that, especially in the early days, high organic growth and engagement is awesome. And every startup should, you know, strive for that. And that's kind of, you know, the North Star. But when you talk about a cult brand, there are so many other puzzle pieces and so many other dots that play a significant role in building that picture and building that cult, that having just one puzzle piece, having just one dot is definitely not an early sign of a cult brand because any successful company, any successful startup should at one point have high organic growth and engagement from their customers. So I view that as a bucket as early signs of awesome product market fit and awesome signs that this is going to be a really important and great company. Definitely doesn't mean that it's going to become a cult brand, which is fine. And not every brand should become a cult brand and not every brand should want to become a cult brand. They're totally different things. That's kind of how I view it. So what's the principal reason why you think a cult brand might fail or a brand looking to become a cult brand might not ever get to that cult status? Well, I would put it like this. I think that majority of the brands that would never get into that cult status is intentionally as in, you know, they're just not interested. They don't know about it. I would say that the brands who at least attempt to try is they potentially either don't have product market fit, which you kind of need for this. It's, you know, goes hand in hand. They either don't have product market fit or they haven't created a good enemy. And these cult brands are really like, they're really interesting beasts. You know, they're living, breathing organisms that constantly have to be fed. The barriers to entry are really high. So the barriers to become a cult brand are really high. It's really hard, but the barriers to exit are really low. It's really easy to kind of fall out of touch. And cults die out all the time. They die out when the message stops getting pushed, when followers really don't feel that kind of sense of you know leadership within the cult. It ultimately happens when followers feel that they need to search for their individualism again. And this could happen because the cult became mainstream. So like you said before, you mentioned that enemies need to be broad enough so this way a large amount of people could actually join them. But take a look at Apple. Apple was kind of the first cult brand at least the first one that I remember. And what was interesting is it really started throughout their whole Think Different campaign. If you look at it now, a lot of people, even if you were to say a decade ago, maybe 15 years ago, Apple was still definitely a cult brand back then. People, especially if you think about kind of the iPhone and leading up to kind of iPhone 4, iPhone 5, 
people would you know camp outside of their stores ahead of an iPhone launch. But today that doesn't that doesn't really happen. If you look about it, they just became so mainstream that people kind of had to search for, okay, like what's next to make me feel different. A cult could also suffer kind of a shock to its system from a PR nightmare. It could be people who are diehard fans of Away, you know, and that hit piece came out, what was it, a few months ago. And it could be like, oh, well, hmm, not so sure that I want to align myself with this anymore. Maybe I need to go search for something else that kind of fits better with me. And most startups, though, they just don't become cult brands because they just don't craft a strategy. They don't pick an enemy. They don't know where to find their followers or just not even on the radar, which is totally fine. But yes, to kind of sum up, not every brand needs to have a cult following. And it's really difficult. I'd say that there's like a point to really hone in on. It's that the best cult brands are the ones who continue to stoke the flames. It's the ones who understand the psyche of their followers and know how to push their buttons and know how to direct them in the areas that they want to be directed in. It's a combination of there's an entirely different commitment curve of how do you keep someone alive? How do you keep, how do you retain that user? How do you retain that follower? And they're just different beasts that need constant attention, constant feeding, just like any other living, breathing organ. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I really like your example with Apple. I mean, I would say that, and I wonder about this too, just since you brought up Apple, you know, like thinking about like AirPods and I almost feel like in some ways, like the actual product itself was almost like a cult brand in some way. Maybe it was too mainstream to be considered a cult brand. But what I find is interesting about Apple is that any new product they put out, even though you might not have like the lines that you used to, you still have that user adoption quite rapidly. Yeah. The only difference being, while you do have that user adoption, Apple does a horrific job at, you know, kind of rallying the troops. They don't really do anything. The way that they wow their audience is with great marketing videos or new, you know, awesome, stunning keynote presentations. That's kind of their interaction now with their real core followers. And they've actually splintered into a bunch of different core sets of followers. They have their users and their customers. They have their developers. They have their investors. They have so many kind of different things going from just so many different audiences that they can't play on kind of the cult status field, the cults field, just because they're too big. They actually, they, they honestly, they graduated from it. I mean, a trillion dollar company, two recently, two trillion dollar company, they kind of graduated from that cult status, which is a whole different level in itself. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And of course, I'm sure that if you're able to graduate from cult status, that's a beautiful thing. So how do you come across early opportunities that you believe and develop into cult brands? I know you kind of have this framework that we just discussed in your two articles, which I loved. When you're meeting with founders, you're meeting with brands. Are you thinking about if this company could develop into kind of a cult status? Um, it's really hard to do that. We invest at the pre-seed stage where honestly, you're just betting on everything. It's so hard to predict everything at you know this stage and actually be right. The things that we do look at, which I think have the potential to turn into cult brands is we just look for companies that are totally radically different from the rest. We look for those kind of opportunities where they kind of just disrupt the status quo and they're able to reinvent kind of that customer experience. We really, just to sum it up, I guess a better way of putting it is we like to invest in wowable experiences. And I, I've actually been talking a lot about this on Twitter is that there's a new benchmark now. And the person who coined this phrase is definitely not me. It's uh, Maya Cohen from Lemonade, who was like one of the founding employees there. And she puts it perfectly. She said, at Lemonade, there was a big question of when should we launch? When should we do this? When should we go out there to the public? And they were very strict with themselves. And they said, we can't launch until we have a minimum viable product. And I think that they've totally raised the bar for both consumer and really even enterprise companies coming out of the gate. Minimum viable products don't work anymore. They are stale. They're not as exciting, especially when everyone needs to compete with the latest, hottest company that's taken up 
all the buzz. And so what we're looking for is we're looking for those about wowable products. We're looking for those kinds of founders who think differently. It's not only about the product being radically different from the rest, it's the founders who are radically different from the rest who see the world in a different you know, light. And that's kind of generic to say, I think every single investor kind of looks for those opportunities. I think the difference between it is having the understanding to spot those opportunities versus not. It's one thing to look for them and not really know what you're looking for and kind of stumble into it. It's another thing to know what you're looking for and then to go into it kind of with clear conviction. And those are kind of the opportunities that we look for. I mean, it's really interesting because you say this about the wow factor, but you also have investors like I know like Reed Hoffman tweeted, you know, like you heard me say, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late, which I think is a bit opposite towards like the wow right? How should founders be thinking about these two different dynamics here in terms of like when to actually launch their business? Yeah, great question. I definitely, I've got nothing on Reed. Um, he's a legend. But I see the world differently. I understand where he's coming from. I just don't think it cuts it anymore. I also have no idea when he said it. It could be he said it many years ago. I just think that the level of competition today is so fierce and so intense that when we see a pitch deck, when we see a product, when we see a demo, there's such a clear difference between the ones with an MVP that everything is kind of pieced together and this doesn't work and this is broken. And I'm not saying that all the bugs have to be fixed. When I say a wowable experience, what I'm talking about is something that really delights people. And typically what goes undetected that is incredibly delightful is stunning design. Stunning design, your product could be totally half-baked, but if you have stunning design, everyone will think that it's wowable. And that's kind of what we're looking for. We're looking for the founders that kind of understand that. We're looking for the teams that understand Again, it's not about having a fully baked product. It's having a fully baked idea and have it, and presenting that fully baked and making that wowable through design, through storytelling. So it could be, by the way, hey, listen to Reed. He's, he's done it before and, and, and he is a legend. But I do think that the bar is different today. I think that the bar is always changing. The bar is always constantly getting higher. I think that you have periodically, you know, once in a lifetime companies like Lemonade who come along and create new benchmarks and just continue to level up what everyone else should be doing. And that's where I think that we're at today. And that's what I'm looking for. And it could be that's not every company and it could be that's not a strategy for you, which is totally cool. I'm looking to back those opportunities and those founders that think differently, honestly. No, that's great. And yeah, he said that in 2017. So I guess like a few years old. So much has happened since 2017 and 2020 has felt like a decade in itself. So so true. So talk to me a bit about Ground Up. I know we kind of dived in for your two articles, but would obviously love to know like your attraction to startups entrepreneurship and what led you to being part of Ground Up. So first and foremost, Ground Up is a early stage VC. We do pre-seed and seed stage investing both in the US and in Israel. So I actually spent the last five years in Israel, moved there from New York, and it was actually such a phenomenal experience. I recently moved back to New York, but it's really been phenomenal. And essentially what, what led me to Ground Up is that one of the founding partners are two incredible founding partners, David Stark and Corey Molis, who are incredible people. So I worked with David Stark at a former venture fund that I worked at in Israel, in Jerusalem, that he was on, you know, one of the founding team members and, and ultimately partners of. And that was called Aircrowd, which is kind of like a hybrid VC. And when he left Aircrowd to create Ground Up with Corey, he started talking to me about joining. And I think what kind of stood out to me the most is is that I was just thinking that if I were to ever go start a startup, I would want David and Corey to back it. I would want them on my side. And I was figured like that those are the perfect opportunities you should work at, you know. And so that's how I ended up at Ground Up. It's been just almost two years now and about like two and a half years since we closed the first fund that we're investing out of right now. And that's a story about Ground Up. So if any, by the way, if anyone doesn't know David and Corey, highly recommend you follow them on Twitter. Great people. 
they did not pay me to say that. I'm saying that of my own free will. But um, yeah, would love for more people to get to know us. We're great people, I think. And we just love, you know, meeting all and interesting people. No, I love that. And also we'll put your Twitter details in the show notes so folks can follow you as well because I really enjoyed your updates. And that's great. Thanks so much for telling me a bit about your history and five years of Israel. That sounds like a fascinating experience. So what is one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think that we just come with like a very fresh approach. And that's at the core of like, I think who we are as people is that we believe that the founders that we're investing in are investing just as much in us as we are in them. And they need to hold us accountable just as much as we need to hold them accountable. And we want to be friends and partners with these founders. We want to celebrate in their wins, both their personal and professional wins. And we just like kind of view the industry, or at least the way that we approach it, should be less transactional and just there should just be more heart involved. And if there was one thing that I would change about it, it's just, we need more heart. We need more understanding. It's all the time you see these threads on Twitter going wild about, you know, this success and that success. And there was actually a great tweet from one of the founders that we invested in, Kristen Anderson from Catch. And she had a whole tweet about how just being super vulnerable about her journey and how Catch almost at one point shut down. And then they like stayed up all night, put in an application for YC, got into YC and like kind of, that was like kind of the you know, the, the new start of their company. And something that they do in Israel all the time is they celebrate failures. And in America, at least coming back, kind of seeing both sides of it, I don't think we hear about failures often enough and we definitely don't celebrate them. So there's one thing that I would change. It's, it's we should start celebrating kind of, you know, those failures. And kind of just to bring up Reed Hoffman, one of the things that he says, which really is ingrained in my mind, is that being a founder, being an entrepreneur is like jumping off a cliff and building a plane on the way down. And that's insanely difficult to do. And I think that we as an industry should just be more understanding and we should celebrate the failures just as much as we celebrate the wins. And we should promote those voices within the community as well. Gosh, I think that that's such a great point. And I think that you're the first person I've done now, I think 80 of these interviews. And I think that's you're, you're the first person that said that as a point to this question to celebrate the failures. I think that's really terrific. And I think also you can learn probably a lot more from that than actually studying like the successful companies in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's great. So what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I wouldn't say that there was a book actually more on the professionally side is that medium article that I mentioned that Mark Sester wrote called invest in lines, not dots. That totally changed my framework of how I think through everything, how I just think about relationship building, how I think about becoming, you know, genuine friends with people and not just having it be transactional. So I would highly recommend that. I would also highly recommend Douglas Atkins book on cult brands. That was, that was really interesting. Personally, there are a lot of books to get, you know, a bit personal, you know, I'm an Orthodox Jew. So, so I study a lot, you know, things related to the Bible and the Talmud and just belief and faith. So too many books to share that touched me uh, and made an impact in my life personally, but just to give your listeners a bit of understanding of my background and when, where I come from and how I think through things. No, thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that. And also, yeah, I mean, I think that, that some of those book recommendations are great. Final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? This is actually a piece of advice that I heard from a really awesome guy who put together an incredible marketing and branding campaign for a startup called Way Up. And essentially what he told me, which really stuck with me also was, 
when you go into something, just imagine you have an unlimited budget, you know, get to that whiteboard and draw out everything that you would do, everything that you want to accomplish. How would you run your startup if you had an unlimited budget? What's the way that you would treat people? What's the way that you would treat your customers? What's the way that you would treat your employees? What's the way that you would build your product? What's the way that you would design your product? And then work backwards, say, okay, we have X amount of money in the bank and we could realistically do these things. But it's really always important to realize what the North Star is. I think that a lot of times founders get bogged down by finances, which they should. It takes money to run a company, which no one is denying. But there's a bit of magic to it as well. There's a bit of magic in understanding and conceptualizing that you're building what hasn't been built before because you believe that there's a real gap in the market. You believe that there's an opportunity to create something from scratch. And don't forget that. I think that a lot of startups become transactional. They become about, let's hit this milestone, let's hit that milestone. I think it's important to remember to keep the magic alive. And the second thing that I would say is it's important to always stop once a month at least and just recognize where you came from. I think that mental health is a really important thing and being a founder is a really lonely journey especially when you don't have peers who have been there, done that before that could kind of hold your hand and just say, everything's going to be okay. And by the way, as, as investors, I think that's a really big part of an investor's job. It's to become cheerleaders. It's to become therapists and to just listen and to just talk. And that's really important. So I think that it's, if there was like kind of another piece of advice that I would give to founders, it's just like take a moment, even if it's right now while you're listening to this and just stand up and just start clapping. Just like be proud of yourself for all that you've accomplished. Because like Reid Hoffman said, you're building an airplane on the way down from, you know, jump off a cliff and you got to be like a superhero to do that. So just, you know, take the time and really congratulate yourself on a job well done. I love that. And I guess the closing words will be from Reed Hoffman. That's, that's awesome. You know, and I really like that unlimited budget idea and then scaling back in terms of a limited budget, but what really are the essential important things right now? And yeah, also how the founder journey, it's certainly a lonely one and really paying attention as well as a founder to make sure that your own mental health, that's very, very important. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this. Thanks, Mike. I definitely did. It was, you know, my first ever interview on a podcast and I still don't think I'm anywhere near as smart or as important enough as, you know, some of the other people that you posted to be on a podcast, but I um, figured I would, I would take you up on it anyways on the off chance that someone finds anything that I have to say interesting. So appreciate you reaching out, appreciate you taking the time and appreciate anyone who's, you know, kind of made it to the end, just appreciate their patience and for taking the time to listen. And there you have it. It was awesome talking with Jordan about cult brands, product launches, as well as sharing his unique story. I highly recommend following Jordan on Twitter at Jordan Odinsky. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe. Oh, 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 oh,